Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Well, good evening. Let's open our Bibles to Matthew chapter 24. As you are doing that, let's have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the joy you've put in our hearts because as we see what the world is going through and will be going through, we're so glad to know the one who has it all in his hands. Gives us a sense of confidence and true peace. And I pray that that kind of confidence and that kind of peace would increase in our own personal lives, especially as we learn more about what the Lord Jesus told his disciples in this Sermon on the Mount or in this Olivet Discourse. So we ask for a measure of your spirit to reveal your truth to us. In Jesus' name, amen. In the year 2006, God came to Noah again, now living in the United States, and said, Once again the earth has become wicked and overpopulated, and the end of all flesh is before me. So build another ark and save two of every living thing. Then God gave Noah the blueprint, saying, You've got six months to build the ark before I send rain for forty days and for forty nights. Six months later, God said, Noah, I'm about to start the rain. Where is the ark? Noah said, Sorry, Lord, but things have changed. I needed a building permit. My neighbors claim I violated the neighborhood zoning laws by building an ark in my yard, and I have exceeded the height limitations. We had to go to the Development Appeal Board for a decision. Then the Department of Transportation demands a bond be posted for future costs of moving power lines to clear the passage for the ark's move out to sea. I told them the sea would be coming to us, but they would hear nothing of it. Uh, Getting the wood was another problem, Lord. There's been a ban on cutting local trees in order to save the spotted owl. I tried to convince the environmentalists that I needed the wood to save the owls, but no go. When I started gathering animals, the animal rights groups sued me, saying I was confining wild animals against their will. They said the ark is too restrictive, cruel, and inhumane to put so many animals in a confined space. Then the EPA ruled that I couldn't build an ark until they conducted an environmental impact study on the proposed flood. Lord, I'm still trying to resolve a complaint with the Human Rights Commission on how many minorities I should hire for a building crew. The trade unions say that I can't use my sons. They insist that I have to hire only union workers with ark building experience. Then the IRS seized all my assets, claiming I'm trying to leave the country illegally with endangered species. So, forgive me, Lord, but it's going to take at least ten years for me to finish the ark. Suddenly, the skies cleared, the sun began to shine, and the rainbow stretched across the sky. Noah looked up in wonder. You mean, Lord, you're not going to destroy the world? No, God said, the government beat me to it. (laughs) 
I shared that little quip tonight. First of all, just so we can poke a little fun at how complicated we have made things over time. And also, frankly, just for a little comic relief, because of the material we're going into tonight. You know, Matthew 24 so far hasn't been a real joyful chapter, has it? It's not a place we frequently resort to when we want comfort. Jesus has been asked a question by the disciples. We know that they expected that Jesus would inaugurate a whole list of things, including bringing in his kingdom. Rather, Jesus says, well, the temple that you see is going to come tumbling down to the ground and pique their interest. So they want to know when, how. When will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? They did not expect the answer he was going to give them. So he tells them about a whole list of signs. Spiritual deception, war, rumors of wars, famine, earthquakes. And then he says, that's just the beginning of sorrows. Then they're going to turn you over to tribulation. You're going to be hated by all men for my name's sake. Then he predicts, the coming abomination of desolation in verse 15. And so it seems like we start with the question and we seem to descend further and further into worse and worse times. And what we're about to read is really the worst of all. And so tonight we're going to look at only two verses. Verse 21 and 22, where Jesus continues by saying, For then... There will be great tribulation, such as has not been since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor ever shall be. And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. Those two ominous, sobering verses highlight for us three conditions that exist between God and man. One condition that has existed ever since the fall of man. A second condition that will exist in the future for man as the sin upon the earth accumulates. And the third is a condition that has forever existed between God and man because it's rooted deeply in the character and in the nature of God. So tonight we look at those three conditions. Condemnation, tribulation, and then finally God's mercy at the end, which we have titled compassion. So we want to look at only two verses tonight. As uh, again, I try to take a bigger paragraph. I find that I cannot because there's so much just to plumb the depths of these two verses. So let's begin with the first one, condemnation. And I'm calling it, and it's in your outlines tonight, continual condemnation. Here's why. In verse 21, Jesus begins to introduce a theme to the disciples that is a little bit different than what we have been reading so far. And this new theme gets layered in with all of the aforementioned signs of the coming tribulation that he already spoke about. War, disease, famine, deception, etc. But this is a little bit different. And it highlights something that has been a condition for a long time. Okay. 
The first three and a half years of that coming seven-year period, we call it the tribulation, for the most part, there will be natural disasters, earthquakes, famines, wars, rumors of wars. That, That happens in the natural realm. That's a part of people living on the earth. And then right in the middle of that seven years, the abomination of desolation as we have seen. And then the last three and a half years, rather than focusing on something natural, the emphasis here is on something supernatural. Now Jesus introduces on top of wars, on top of rumors of wars, on top of earthquakes and famines, now God's wrath being poured out upon the earth. All right. This is, perhaps, the least favorite subject of anyone who reads the Bible. And probably the least favorite subject to preach on for any preacher or teacher of the Bible. Nobody likes to read about or preach about God's wrath. It's it's just not a popular thing to go through. We don't generally underline these kinds of verses. But imagine if a doctor, say an oncologist asked a postal worker or a courier, a messenger, to hand deliver a letter to a patient that said, you have cancer. What if the courier said, I don't like sad news. I don't like to deliver anything except happy, wonderful, joyful news, so I refuse to hand deliver that letter. We would call that an unfaithful messenger. Jesus Christ faithfully brings the message of God's judgment that is coming upon the earth in Matthew chapter 24. And so here's the theme, and it's an underlying theme, and it's, as I said, a condition that has existed ever since the fall of man. It is called the wrath of God. Now listen carefully. The wrath of God is the permanent and fixed attitude of a holy, righteous God toward an evil, sinful world. It's permanent and fixed. It's not up, it's not down, it's not like that. God has a bad God day and He decides to take it out on the world. It's a permanent, fixed attitude of His wrath toward an evil, sinful world. Paul highlights that. The first chapter of Romans, Paul says, For the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. God's wrath is linked with God's holiness, God's righteousness. God is holy, God is just, God is righteous. Therefore, God must punish evil. Without wrath, God is not righteous. For God to be righteous, this wrath against sin, where God will eventually deal with it, has to be in place. There's a book that C.S. Lewis put out, perhaps his most famous because it's been made into a movie, called The Chronicles of Narnia. And there's a scene in it, you probably saw the movie or read the book, where C.S. Lewis has these two sisters, Lucy and Susan, getting ready to meet Aslan, the lion. And Mr. and Mrs. Beaver are talking animals in the story. They're going to introduce and get ready these two human beings to meet Aslan. And it's in the point of the conversation where they just find out 
Aslan is not a human being, but a lion. And Susan is shocked, and she says, I thought he was a human. You mean to tell me he's a lion? Is he quite safe? Asked Susan. I should not know how to meet a lion. And the beaver says, Who said anything about being safe? Of course he is not safe, but he is good. Now that's a very important point in the story because it highlights what we're talking about. God is good. God is righteous because he is never safe concerning evil, but he must judge it, and that's where his wrath comes in. Have you ever heard people say, well, you know, I like the Bible, but I like the New Testament. I don't like the Old Testament because the Old Testament portrays this horrible, vengeful God of wrath, whereas the New Testament pictures a nice, sweet God of grace. Your answer should be, God is the same in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. I just quoted Romans. That's New Testament. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven. So God has never changed His attitude towards sin, ever. You say, what about the cross? Ah, yes. It's the cross of Jesus Christ, whereby if a person applies the blood of Christ to his life and receives Christ as Savior, then the wrath of God skips over that person because he is found in the mercy and the grace of God. At the cross, God's wrath is satisfied. But apart from the cross, there is that constant, fixed attitude toward evil. When did it all start? The wrath of God began in this relationship we have with God at the fall. There's a lot of scriptures for this. I just want to give you a quick snapshot. Again, in Romans chapter 5 this time, verses 12, 13, and 14, listen to how Paul crafts this statement. Through one man, sin entered the world. Who is that one man? Adam. Through one man, sin entered the world, and death through sin. And thus death spread to all men, and death reigned from Adam all the way to Moses, who was the lawgiver. So there's a a stage. Sin entered. Death entered. Death spread. Death reigned throughout mankind. This is what it means. It means that every single person born, every cute little baby has the same spiritually genetic defect that we all have. And that is a sin nature. A genetic spiritual flaw. Have you ever bitten into an apple and got a worm? I heard a couple yeses. I did a few months ago. I bit into an apple, and I didn't see anything on the outside, and I didn't know anything was there till I bit into it, and I cut a worm in half. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And I said that after I swallowed. (laughs) Okay. But did you know, did you know that worms get into apples not from the outside, but from the inside? Yeah, you see... uh, Eggs are laid in the blossom of the apple and hatch in the core and then work their way from the core to the surface, not from the surface to the core. Boy, that's how we are. We are born rotten to the core. 
it's sin is an inside job that infects from the heart. Everybody is born with it, and it works its way to the outside. Folks, that is the whole reason. That's the whole answer. If you wonder, why is the world still so bad after thousands of years of development and education and technology? Because the heart, apart from God's intervention, never changes. So there is this condition of the wrath of God. Now, quickly, there's a couple of words that the New Testament uses that's translated the same word in English, wrath. The first word is thumos. Does that sound familiar to you? We get the word thermos from it, or thermostat, or thermometer. Thumos is a word that speaks about an episode of anger, red, hot, burning anger, usually a human being just flying off the handle in an uncontrolled episode of anger. That's thumos. There's a second word. It's the word orge. And it speaks of a constant, controlled, simmering anger or wrath. In the book of Romans, when Paul speaks about the wrath of God being revealed from heaven, he uses the second word. It's that slow, simmering, constant attitude of God toward sinful man. However, in the book of Revelation, when John speaks about the wrath of God, he will often use the first word, thumos, as if to say, here's God who's been patient After year, after year, after year, he's got this attitude of wrath towards sinful man, but he is held back and he is patient, and now he has had enough. And in the tribulation, there will be that eruption of his anger. Before we get into that, let's look at verse 21. For then there will be great tribulation such as has not been since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor ever shall be. Now we move from this continual, constant condemnation to a temporary or temporal tribulation. See, we know Jesus is speaking of a future, short episode of time called the tribulation. But notice what he says. For then there will be great tribulation. Now, if you look over at verse 9, he does mention the word tribulation. They will deliver you up to tribulation. But here he says in verse 21, For then, that is right after the abomination of desolation, then there will be great tribulation. The term tribulation could be translated anxiety or pressure or distress. Pressure. And the word great is the word Well, we would say mega. It's the Greek megale. Jesus is saying, there is coming to this earth a mega trial, a mega pressure cooker event, which he calls here the Great Tribulation. And he says, such has not been since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor ever shall be. You know why that is? Well, we can see already, we've already read it. But Jesus, in introducing this wrath of God, now we see why it's going to be so bad. Now we see there's a confluence, a coming together of um, Satan's activity on the earth, man's rebellion on the earth, and then on top of that is poured out all of God's judgment and God's wrath during an episode of time. It's quite a statement. 
For Jesus to say there has never been a time historically or ever will be in the future as bad as that time. That's quite a statement. Because just for a minute, think of all the bad episodes in life. You can say, I can think of a few in my own life. No, just think historically for a moment. Think of the Holocaust. Think of World War I, World War II. Think of things like the Spanish Inquisition or the great plagues of Europe. All of the wars that have been fought and the millions upon millions of people who have been killed. And yet Jesus says the coming event is going to be worse than all of them. Jesus in Matthew 24 agrees with Daniel chapter 12 verse 1. The prophet says, There will be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation even unto that time. And both of them would agree with Jeremiah who said, That day is great, there is none like it. It is a time of Jacob's trouble. So we know that this permanent condition since the fall of man is going to erupt in a temporal tribulation where God unleashes His anger, His wrath for a period of time upon this earth. And it's never happened before quite like that. The tribulation in the Bible is known by several names. Let me share a few of them with you. Twenty-six times it's called the Day of the Lord. It is called the indignation in Isaiah chapter 26 and Isaiah 34. It's known as the day of God's vengeance, Isaiah 63 and Isaiah 34. It is known as the great day of His wrath in Revelation 6. And, oddly, it is referred to as the wrath of the Lamb in Revelation 6. I say that's odd because that sounds like an oxymoron, doesn't it? The wrath of the lamb. Have you ever seen an angry lamb? Watch out! There's a lamb! Beware of lamb. Lambo. Didn't make sense. Lambs are docile. But that's just the point. The lamb we know is the Son, Jesus Christ. We often picture Jesus because we want to as always docile, always joyful, always loving, kissing babies, hugging people, singing with people. And He was so full of joy and so full of love. But we like to forget the times when and will in the future the same Son of God will be full of wrath. You see, the same Jesus Christ who drew in children drove out merchants from the temple. And there will be in the future the wrath of the Lamb, Jesus. Well, Jesus says it's bad. It's really bad. It's not just a, a, an episode of trouble. We all have that. Jesus said in the world you're going to have tribulation. There's a big difference, however, from the tribulation that comes from the world as just a human being living here and the future tribulation that God sends His wrath. And you might ask, well, okay, I get, I get the point. What could be so bad about it? How could that day be any different or any worse than even today or other periods of time in history? Here's a thumbnail sketch. In the book of Revelation, chapter 6, there are seven seals that begin the tribulation period. During that time, there will be unparalleled war, slaughter, famine, incredible inflation, and people hiding in caves and mountains from God's wrath. 
Then in Revelation 8, we have the seven trumpet judgments, and things get a lot worse. Hail and fire come from the sky to the earth. Rivers, springs, streams of water become polluted and undrinkable, and all the green grass is scorched upon the earth. By the way, the tribulation period will be a nightmare for an environmentalist. It'll be the worst. Because if you think we've messed this place up, wait till you see what God does with it. He will trash it. Revelation chapter 9, the bottomless pit is open, hordes of demons come out. Revelation 12, demons further are cast to the earth from the heavens. Revelation 16 introduces the third round called the the bowl judgments that are poured out upon the earth that include malignant sores, water poisoned, the sun scorching the flesh of men, and hailstones coming out of heaven. And then as we continue to read, it gets worse because there is then a final conflict mentioned in Revelation 16 where there's a confederation of nations around the world that gather together against Christ at the Battle of Armageddon. Now listen to this. Here's the response from heaven during that time. I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him is called Faithful and True. In righteousness he judges and makes war. Jesus comes out of heaven at that final conflict and makes war upon the earth. He declares war. Now the inevitable question here, because we've painted a very dark picture, and you're thinking, this is not a happy Bible study. And so you would naturally ask, why? What on earth could be the purpose of God ever doing that to the earth? What would be the purpose of the tribulation? There are several, but I'll just give you two. Number one, it is God's final period of judgment upon nations that have rejected God for so long. You see, we have presumed upon God's patience for such a long time. Over in Rome, there's a little room. It's one of the most famous rooms in the world. We were looking at it in picture form on a computer today, the Sistine Chapel. And on one side of the Sistine Chapel is perhaps Michelangelo's most famous painting called The Great Judgment. It centers in this picture. There's a lot of activity, but it centers on the raised hand of Christ about ready to fall in judgment upon the world. Michelangelo painted it to counteract secular humanism in his day. People had forgotten God. People had forgotten that history would end one day at God's judgment bar. And so when that painting was done, it went throughout Europe. Various European cities displayed it. And it is said that by and large, when Europeans looked on it, here was the phrase, all of Europe trembled. They trembled as they realized this patient, loving God will also be just and one day judge all of the nations and separate the sheep from the goats. There'll be a final period of judgment. I heard about a farmer who was an atheist. Never went to church on Sunday. Hard-working farmer. And he, uh, he wrote a letter to the local newspaper, to the editor. He asked it to be posted. This is what he said. I've plowed on Sunday. I've planted on Sunday. 
I've cultivated on Sunday. I've hauled in my crops on Sunday, but I've never gone to church on Sunday. And yet I have harvested more bushels per acre than anyone else, even those who are God-fearing and never miss a Sunday service. Very brash. The editor printed it. And then he added his own comments saying, God doesn't always settle his accounts in October. God is willing that none should perish. He doesn't want anyone to perish eternally. But there is a coming time when God will settle the accounts with this earth. And that's the tribulation period. There's a second reason, briefly. And that is to prepare Israel for her Messiah. To prepare Israel for her Messiah. They rejected the Messiah the first time. Jesus came into His own and His own received him not. Many will be turning to Messiah. We know at least 144,000 who are sealed, perhaps more. During that horrible period of time, their hearts will open up for their Messiah. So, all of this is part of the justice of Almighty God. You know, I used to picture God, like a lot of people do today, A lot of us used to picture God as some feeble, gentle, bearded old man sitting on a cloud, just smiling as he watches every day go by. And that's the picture that some people have. And they will even say, well, well, if God is a God of love, how could he judge the world? I ask, if God is a God of love, how could he not judge the world? Think of all that God has seen for so many years. Think of every bad newspaper headline in every major city around the world since newspapers were written. Think of every dark deed, every terrorist activity ever done, every child molestation, murder, rape that God has seen and knows intimately about. And He's been patient and patient and patient. And finally He says in Revelation... There shall be delay no longer. And the full fury and wrath of God is poured out. And so this temporal tribulation poured out upon the earth, which brings us to a third point. It's in verse 22. And that is eternal compassion. This is really the best part of it. And I was struck by it, honestly, this week. Verse 22 just jumps out at me. And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. That's how bad it's going to get. Nobody on earth could survive this. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. Now, in that verse, you have a spiritual principle. That when God gives out judgment, He always mingles it with His mercy. There's always an element of mercy, even in the severe judgments of God. You remember the prophet Habakkuk who wanted to ask God what was the future going to hold? And God said, well, it's not really good. The Babylonians are going to come and they're going to invade you guys. And I'm going to judge you for a period of time by sending you away to Babylon. This really upset Habakkuk because he understood the Babylonians are like really bad guys. Okay, we're bad. They're really bad. But he knew the character of God. And he said, Lord... Do what you need to do. 
But in wrath, remember mercy. In wrath, remember mercy. You know why he prayed that? Because God always, in wrath, remembers mercy. He'll always mingle mercy with his judgment. You say, well, how would God be merciful during this coming period of human history? A few different ways. First way is called the rapture of the church, where all of those believers in Christ up till that period of time will be taken off the earth. The rapture will have already occurred. As Peter said in 2 Peter chapter 2, the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptation and reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. That will have already occurred. Way number two, many people during that time of the tribulation will come to believe in God, trust in Jesus Christ, be saved, and be counted among this group, the elect that are mentioned here. Way number three, that time is going to be really bad. So it's going to be compressed. It's going to be made short. Unless those days were shortened And it means to be cut off suddenly, ended abruptly. No flesh would be saved, but for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. So God's going to judge the world, and God has every right to pour hundreds and thousands of years of judgment upon the earth. But it's going to be condensed to 1,260 days, 42 months, three and a half years. Those days are going to be shortened. Perhaps that's the meaning of it. Can I give you an alternate meaning? Some people think that what this means is that the judgment is going to be so bad that God in His mercy is going to actually shorten the days, shorten the daylight hours, so there won't be as much sunshine going on, so that the forces, the armies of the Antichrist will have less visibility to persecute the elect. It's possible. Three times in the book of Revelation, it speaks about this Uh, new configuration of darkness that comes upon the earth. Listen to this. This is Revelation chapter 8. And the fourth angel sounded his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of them turned dark. A third of the day was without light, and also a third of the night. So with a third less sunlight, you have a third less energy to maintain systems in the world, That's going to mess with heat and cold, obviously. It's going to be pretty brutal. But it also takes away the advantage of those who would do damage to God's elect. Perhaps that's what it means. The days themselves will become short. So here we have judgment. The wrath of God, the eruption of that wrath in the tribulation, but it's always mingled with mercy. There was a sign posted on a tree right in front of a convent And listen to what it said. No trespassing. Violators will be prosecuted to the full extent of the law. Signed, the Sisters of Mercy. (laughs) It doesn't sound very merciful, does it? In the tribulation, God is, so to speak, hanging up His sign. There will be delay no longer. As the full wrath is poured out upon the earth, God is saying, I've had enough. But He takes away the edge with an element of mercy. I love what James writes in James chapter 2. He says, Mercy triumphs over judgment. 
and we see it even in the very end. Now, all of us here tonight, every single person in this auditorium or listening by radio, we're all broken vessels. We all have a story. We all have baggage. We all have something that has hurt us, trials, tribulations. What is it that has broken you? Could be a divorce. You're broken from that. You feel crippled from that event. Could be a disease. You're not who you once were. Could be an, an episode of an affair that broke up a relationship. It could be a slander. With all of those bad, horrible times, God always adds mercy. And here's my point. Because that's true, you and I need to start looking for it. Do you find it refreshing that King David, before he was king, was followed by Saul, who tried to kill him for ten years? Dogged like an animal, followed from town to town by somebody who wanted to kill him. Followed also by rebels who wanted to overturn him. And yet the one thing David remembers that followed him, well, listen to what he says, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And so, yes... Life has disappointments. Life has trials. Life has tribulations. Certainly not like this one. But with all of those bad episodes, we need to look for that string of mercy woven into even the worst of times. I have always loved what Corey Ten Boom memorized when she was in a Nazi concentration camp. She said it was a little poem that I recite over and over and over again just to keep me sane and to keep my eyes focused. She said, look around and be distressed. Look within and be depressed. Look to Jesus. Be at rest. Even in a Nazi concentration camp, as a young woman, she saw the mercy of God time after time. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you tonight in the last few moments before we leave because we want what we have heard tonight, what we have read tonight, what we've considered from your book of truth, the Bible, to penetrate our hearts, change the way we look at life and live life. We've seen some very important truths. The truth of that continual condemnation that exists between man before his God, apart from Christ. That eruption of tribulation that is coming in the future that is so horrible, we we can't even imagine it, even though the Bible is so descript. But then, Lord, the fact that you revealed your mercy in the midst of wrath and judgment, woven into the worst time of human history, that you would consider those elect and what they would suffer and and mitigate against that and cut it short. That's part of your eternal nature and character, rooted deeply in who you are. And so, Father, I pray that we'd learn to live our lives looking for your great mercies to us that are new every morning. Every morning. 
Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. If you would like more information about what you've heard in this message or about Calvary of Albuquerque, please visit our website at www.calvaryabq.org. If you have made a decision to follow Christ or would like someone to pray for you, please leave a message with our prayer watch line at 505-344-3658. Thank you and God bless.